This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 beer and brewing enthusiasts worldwide. The AHA publishes Zymergy Magazine, hosts the National Homebrew Competition and Homebrew Con, and equips members with brewing tips, proven recipes, and money-saving deals on beer, food, and brewing supplies. Founded in 1978, the AHA remains true to founder Charlie Papazian's timeless advice, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Celebrate beer and homebrewing with the AHA at Homebrew brewersassociation.org. Hi everybody, it's John Holland. I'm in Westchester County this week at the Captain Lawrence Brewing Company. We have brewer and founder Scott Vaccaro here who has not only led the charge for good beer in this area, um, but has also served as a mentor and as a sort of a uh, a father figure, I think, to a lot of brewers uh, in this area. Uh, you know, not necessarily because of your age, uh, but just because of when you started. And for those of you who aren't familiar with New York's geography, Westchester County is north of New York City. Uh, it has uh, a lot of really nice suburbs to it, a lot of really nice towns. It has some um, uh, leafy, leafy uh, enclaves, as as they were. A lot of foliage. It's yeah, and it's not necessarily a place where craft beer or beer in general had been on anybody's radar and it, it wasn't uh, this was always sort of a wine county as it were a high-end uh, spirits county and then Scott you came along yeah. and sort of changed all of that and and we're here at what is uh, your newer brewery yep. um, which uh, you now have uh, an outdoor beer garden you have a uh, a huge 40 barrel brew house and, and production facility here and it's going to continue to grow when you started off as a home brewer in your kitchen, mm. and, I, and, I, and I know this is sort of a throwaway question, but did, did you ever think that it would be this big? Was it ever part <laughs> of the plan? No, no. I mean, you know, how could you dream something up like this at that age? I mean, I was 17 when I started, so it was um, five gallons on the stove seemed like a lot of beer at one point in time. Um, you know, I did. I eventually I graduated up to 15 gallons and then 25 gallon batches that I made it into college. But um, to think of a 40 barrel brew house and you know 25,000 barrels of beer a year, um, no, I did. I most certainly did not expect it. Um, but you know, I, I always knew I just wanted to make beer and have fun with it. So I mentioned this area uh, didn't have much uh, by the way of craft beer when you came into the scene, and and, and New York and, and this general area has always been kind of a tough nut to crack, be it uh, space, be it real estate, be it just sort of the sheer amount of people, it can actually be harder to gain traction for smaller niche products than, than one might might think. Um, why Westchester, I guess, uh, first of all, and then how did you go about convincing people to show up at your door, first at the old brewery and now, and now here? Um, what were those early years like as far as public awareness and what was the key to it well yeah i mean westchester was the obvious answer for me because this is where i was born and raised you know the, the brewery captain lawrence brewing takes its name from captain lawrence drive right here in westchester where i grew up um you know it, it was more of a um 
there was no real question of it in my mind. This is where I grew up. This is where I knew people. This is where my family was. This is where I wanted to make beer. So I didn't really think too much about, you know, whether or not it was going to be hard, whether or not there was going to be a lot of um, acceptance of it, whether or not it was the right demographics, etc. It just seemed like this is where I live. This is where I want to make beer. Um, you know, it's true what you said. You know, Westchester was very, you know, there's a great culinary uh, scene here. A lot of wine, a lot of high-end spirits, a lot of high-end restaurants, and a lot of people that commute into New York City that know the best of the best and expect. And so um, we, we just took it as a hand-sell approach. I mean, when we opened up here and uh, we brewed our first batch in December of 2005, and it started working uh, on the facilities uh, that August, uh, we immediately went out. You know, we went door-to-door. We knew uh, we had a list of accounts by town. And uh, we just categorized, you know, we just sliced and diced the county and walked in. And we just got a real feel for who was going to be into local beer, who knew what craft beer was, who had any interest in learning more about craft beer, and who was going to place that order the day we showed up with an actual keg. And so, we, you know, we went into it um, feeling pretty confident that we were going we to do a pretty good job um, in getting it out there quickly. However, you know, when... when push came to shove and when people had to open up the checkbook and actually buy a keg from us, it became a little bit more difficult. And I, I still remember very, very vividly going into that first account and um, giving them my pitch and, you know, bringing in unlabeled bottles of beer that I had filled off the bright beer tank that were probably semi-carbonated. They probably weren't, uh, you know, all the way where they needed to be. And, you know, I poured them out and he looked at me and he said, you know, these are really nice. I wish you the best of luck, but it's not for us. And I was like, I left that meeting, and I was like, oh, God. I was like, this is going to be a little more difficult than I thought. Yeah. Um, now, you know, in retrospect, I mean, that account is now one of our biggest accounts uh, in the county. And they found they, the error they, other they, ways. Yeah, yeah, they came around. But, I mean, there was a lot of that in the beginning. Um, but there were also a lot of yeses. And so once the yeses began, they kind of just snowballed. And, you know, at that point in time, too, you know, New York maybe had 40 breweries in the whole state. Yeah. You know, maybe the U.S. had 1,500 total breweries in the whole country. So... Bringing something new and local, it was for the people who got it, they got it, um, and that's that's kind of how we started. And you know, we, we did in the early days. I did all the brewing, packaging, and delivering, you know, by myself. And I had one other person who was helping out with sales, just kind of hitting the road in between. Is it more difficult to get into accounts now? Just more people know about craft beer and, and, and good beer. Are you finding it? Uh, and now there's, but now there's more breweries, and there's sure. still the same amount of tap handles. Are you finding it? more difficult for a brewery your size to continue to get the the business that you relied on for such a long time? I think that um, in today's day and age, it's maybe not as hard to get into an account, but it is hard as hell to stay in the account. Okay. And so, you know, going in and saying, yeah, I got this, and you know, people... Most publicans now these days, they don't care about buying a Sixtal, you know, paying a little bit more for it because they know it's going to be going in two days. Yeah. And they got the next one in there. And, you know, selling a half barrel and getting a permanent line and getting a month or two months or three months out of an account is, uh, is, is difficult. Um, I will say that when you do get into those accounts that tend to keep uh, the, the beer on for a considerable amount of time, that's where you truly build your brand and that's where, you know, that's where your best accounts end up being. So um, I don't think the craft beer industry would be where it is today without um, without these rotator bars and without um, people, you know, pay, taking anything and anything and putting it on tap. Um, they've really opened up a lot of people's eyes, but those are the most difficult accounts for a brewery our size, at least, to um, gain traction in and, and continue to grow the brand. I think, you know, probably the smaller, newer guys, those are probably the accounts where they sell most of their beer at because those accounts want to keep, you know, keep up with what's hot, what's new, and um, you know, it's it's the circle of life, so to speak, in the beer world these days. It's you know, 
you're new, you're hot. You know, you're you're middle aged, you're old, and then you know maybe you're uh, you're old and hot again. I, I don't know. I'm, well, when you say a brewery your size, what did you guys close out 2017? With? We did just shy of 25,000 barrels. Okay. So, um, so a solid know, regional player. Yeah, I mean, you know, most of that volume too is sourced in the New York metro. Mm-hmm. You know, Westchester County, um, New York's, you know, Brooklyn, Manhattan, um, Northern Jersey, so, you know, Southern Connecticut. Um, you know, those are our, our bread and butter. Um, Westchester County is still a monster for us in the lower Hudson Valley. Um, so, you know. One of the things that you touched on that, and then I, I think we're starting to see more of these days, are brewers that are in the middle. Uh, as it were, so uh, you know, small guys who are doing 1,500 barrels a year, all of it out of their tap room, mm-hmm. uh, sky's the limit for them right now. And it's uh, it's sort of uh, right before the stock market crashed. Is nothing can go wrong. These are yeah. these are heady days. Um, and the larger guys were obviously seeing their volume drop off as well. Mm-hmm. And, and 25,000 barrels is nothing to sneeze at, but it's also one of those ones where um, what, what's your biggest concern right now because of your size? Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I mean it's a valid, it's a valid question. For those of you playing along the uh, at home, uh, that's when you take a drink. <laughs> when somebody says that's a great question, that's the game we're playing now. It's... I could use a drink for that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean you know we've built up a business. You know, and anyone this size, I mean you have a lot of infrastructure, you have a lot of overhead, and so you know if I could convert all twenty five thousand barrels of that to right out my door, yeah. I'd be the happiest man on earth. But that's just not the case. You know, we maybe did. Um, over a thousand, we did over a thousand barrels out of our door, which you know isn't that bad. Um, but you know, if we could get up to you know five thousand, then I'd sleep a lot better at night. I mean, it really just comes down to you know distributors. As much as they say they're not brand collectors, and I don't think they are. Most of them, they will. Most of them will take on anybody and everybody because they want to see what's next and what's hot. And nobody knows unless you try to sell it. And so, my biggest concern is that you know as more breweries uh, you know pop up and. The distributors continue to take on more and more brands. Um, it gets harder for a brewery like mine to uh, stand out outside of their home market. Now, whether that means we retrench and we, you know, stay closer to home and we don't spread out as much as we might have, uh, you know, fi- planned on doing five years ago, um, it's just smart planning. But um, it's really just a matter of, you know, what keeps me up at night is just um, maintaining the focus of uh, of the sales force that we've we've built up and the distribution network that we built up. Because as that contracts, if you can't replace it with home, you know, sales at home, you end up, you know, it gets harder to pay the bills. And you've had expansions uh, and contractions. I live in Jersey, just the, the next sure. state over. You guys were in Jersey for a while, and then I went into we the store one day, and then you guys were gone. I was like, whoa, uh, what happened? And then now you guys are back, which is which is great. Yeah, and um, we pulled out of southern Jersey, actually. Yeah. We're only in northern Jersey now. So, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of ebbs and flows. Um, there definitely are, you know. And... Um, you know, I never would have, we, we started selling beer in the D.C. Metro last year, you know, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., and never would have thought in a million years we'd sell as much beer as we did, and, you know, it's looking like a good year this year, too, even though it's just started. So you kind of pick and choose where you think, you, you know, your, your brand is going to resonate, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, there's no shame in pulling back. Sure. You mentioned that if you could sell all of your beer out, out of your tap room, you'd be a happy guy, or at least getting up to, to 5,000 barrels. Uh, at the at the older brewery, um, it was more difficult uh, to, to get as many people in. Uh, you now have a space where you can fit a, a good amount of people if the weather's nice and oh, yeah. if the weather's uh, if the weather's not. Is that we're, we keep hearing tap rooms are the future? We keep hearing. Uh, you know, this is this is what brewers need to be focusing on is, is selling out their own door. Um, when did you have that realization that hey, we need? The we first need week we opened up. Okay. 
I mean, the first weekend we were open in Pleasantville with a little 250 At square the foot, brewery, yeah, yeah. little 250 square foot tasting room. You know, that first day we had 300 people show up. You know, for growlers, I never thought. I mean, I you know, I, I took the time to write a business plan. I made projections. You know, I mean, they were all thrown out the window in a week. But um, I didn't even bother to put the tasting room in the equation. At that point in time, tasting rooms were. You know, they were cool. I expected people to come in and try beer. I didn't expect people to come in and buy 12 growlers at a time or buy kegs or, you know, and then start making sour ales. You know, you get 300 people lined up wanting to buy, you know, $15 bottles of sour. And, you know, I mean, it really did open my eyes. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's obviously drawbacks depending on your setup. And, you know, if you're not set up for it properly, it can definitely, um, there can be some unhappy customers, unhappy neighbors, unhappy landlords, etc. And so, you know, <laughs> you experienced all yeah, of those. I experienced yeah. all those things. You know, we're in a position now where we, you know, when we first took over this building that we're in now, we had a, basically a 1,200 square foot tasting room and a bunch of grass outside. We quickly realized that the grass would be much better converted into a bocce court and a small little outdoor beer garden. Yeah. And so we added a small little outdoor beer garden and a bocce court. Then we realized that the outdoor beer garden we added was not big enough. So we did another expansion. And then we decided that wasn't big enough, and then I had to go before the town board and get a wetlands variance and because there's a little drainage ditch that was you know, keeping me from utilizing all the grass. And sure, of course. We went and got that variance, and now Protect we have, a, now we have yeah. close to 6,000 square feet of outdoor space. Okay. And um, it really wasn't open until last April, and so last year was our first real season with it. Um, and by the end of the season, it was, it was jamming. So we're expecting a pretty, uh, pretty fun year this year out there. On a previous episode of this podcast, uh, I sat down with Jeff O'Neill, uh, Chief of Industrial sure. Arts in the Hudson Valley, a great New York brewer. Um, and he, in his business plan, was saying uh, that he overplanned for success, you know, and that, that there's so many people who are opening up these days who are underplanning for success. They're, they're, they're being very modest in their gains and, and, uh, uh, or in their hopes. And that in this day and age, you almost have to have the expectation that if your beer is good uh, and you have a, a, a good place that people are going to be uh, coming to you and, and, and wanting to buy more. Taproom space aside, is there anything that surprised you now that you look back from that initial business plan that you said, and I really missed the mark on that, like I wish I had done X this much sooner? Well, my original business plan actually had me self-distributing throughout the entire New York metro, into New York City, <laughs> into Brooklyn, into Long Island. Oh, sure. You know, X amount of trucks I'd need to do this, that. You know, in hindsight, um, I wish I could have pulled that off. Um, but, you know, knowing what I've been through in the past 12 years, I know that wouldn't have been possible. I mean, you know, at this point in time, we have close to 1,000 draft lines out there just in the New York metro. And, you know, we're on Stop and Shop, Shop, right? We're on all the chains, packing those out on the week. I mean, it would have... It never could have happened. But um, again, you know, we kind of grew up in a time where um, it was kind of a race to gain distribution and spread out. And I always did that slow and steady. I, I never really wanted to, you know, we were getting calls from all over the country, you know, do you, do you want to say, in, in the earlier days. And, you know, I always held back, held back, held back. And then um, it got to the point where I think that, that that model flipped maybe three or four years ago and people are no longer really... There's definitely people out there still shooting for it, but a lot of people now have realized that you make a lot more margin selling it out your tap room. Mm -hmm. And if you can create the scarcity model or make enough beer to only you know to satisfy your locals or, or the you know people that are willing to drive to you and, and get in line, then you're going to make a lot more money and you're going to have a lot less headaches because you're going to not going to have to deal with distribution. And at the end of the day, dealing with distributors while they're all our partners and our friends, and I love them all dearly. I mean. It's, you know, they each have their own agenda, their own yeah. set of issues to deal with, their own brands they want to push. And so, you know, I would 
I, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one that would recommend this, but if I was to open up a brewery today, I would open up with a spacious tap room, a great outdoor space to sit, a small kitchen that you're able to at least have guest chefs come in and use, and, uh, you know, produce beer for on-site consumption. So uh, we walked through the brew house, <clears throat> excuse me, before we started. You guys are canning off uh, IPA um, today. And, and, and you, like so many other breweries, have uh, two programs, essentially, uh, clean and wild, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. Started off clean, started off with just the traditional uh, brewery recipes, uh, sure. you know, IPA and, 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 and et cetera. Um, were sours always something that interested you? Or, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I came of age, you know, like, again, like, I started homebrewing in 17 and immediately found every book I could on it. And the books that spoke to me were Michael Jackson's, you know, Great Beers of Belgium. Yeah. And, you know, and you read those books and the way he writes about, you know, Cantillon and Bone and, you know, the Dull Brewers and, you, you know, Rodenbach. You read Leafman's. You read these stories and see these pictures and, like, they were just these, like, you know, the words just, you know, I could taste it without tasting it. and. The more I read them and I'd read them over and over again, it's just trying to like say, maybe I missed something. And, um, you know, eventually when I found some of those beers, you know, it just blew me away. And um, most of the beers that really spoke to me within his writing were the, were the lambics and the sours because I just always had this fascination with oak and barrels and, you know, it's just a romantic vessel, I guess. And so um, from day one, I was, I was home trying to make homebrewed sours when I was still in college. Um, using little five-gallon oak barrels, 10-gallon oak barrels, and then, um, you know, that first batch of sour beer we made, the Cuvée de Castleton, I mean, that was within, that was put in a barrel within, uh, within like, two months of us opening in 2006, or Did When you did that in 2006, I mean, the whole notion of what this style and this category would become was still so infantile yeah. at, at, sure. at this point, and it's blown up to what it is to, today. Um, was this just going to be, like, a fun pet project and you knew maybe there'd be some other folks who had read Jackson who have come through or um, you know that you'd maybe get you know you know I mean I, I had you know like a secret handshake kind of yeah. kind of club um, well, I mean you know I, I you know I kind of um, you know I had my brewing heroes you know it was Vinny and, and Peter Bucare and you know Dan Carey and like you know I traveled across the country um, I went to school in California but I lived in New York and I'd stop at New Glarus I'd stop in New Belgium I'd go to Russian River and I'd buy some of these beers that, you know, the Americanized versions of those, and those would, you know, again, blow my mind. And, you know, I still have bottles of uh, La Folie Cork Cage 750s hand-numbered in my basement that I probably picked up in 2000 or 99. Or I couldn't even tell you when. But, um, What's your address in the alarm? Yeah. <laughs> so I think I have three of those left. Um, but, yeah, I mean, those were, you know, those were beers that really just spoke to me and, you know, the process. I mean... No beer is easy, to, you know, beer is not easy to make if you want to make it really well and make it consistent. But those beers are just next level. And to make, you know, to really, you know, put your trust that you're, you're creating a, a, a substrate in wort and putting it in a barrel and then just closing your eyes and saying, you know, in a year and a half or six months or this is going to taste the way I want it to taste and it's going to be delicious. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of faith you're putting in yourself and in your process. And so... Um, that is why those sour beers were always just such a fascination to me and, and continue to be to today. And you, you've now put your own twist on some of them. Uh, you've, you've branched out a little bit more. I mean, what is your approach when you're making a sour beer these days? Uh, you know, something that's been aging in a barrel. Like what, what, what do you look for when you're creating or trying to create something new or looking for inspiration? Like where do you go? 
Well, I mean, within our own brewery and our own cellar of barrels and whatnot, I mean, it's always based, you know, for me, you know, over the years, the, the one lesson I've learned, or at least my palate has evolved to, to understand, is that, you know, um, restrained acidity can really open up the flavor of the beer. I've had way too many beers that are just so sour um, that you can't taste anything other than the sour. And I, we've, I, we've really tried hard to create beers that are, um, you know, have a titratable acidity that is a reasonable level that allows you to actually taste what's in the beer, not just, you know, pucker up. Um, and then the base beer, if it's going to be fruited, you know, we've tried to create, um, you know, a few different variants on a base that we think will, you know, complement the fruits that we use, whether it be a golden ale, a brown ale, a red ale, a black ale. Um, and that's kind of the approach that we take. But, you know, sour for just being sour, I think, is a horrible idea. And, you know, um, dirty sour versus clean sour is also something I'm not a big fan of, you know, I mean... Expand on that. Like, I, what do you see as dirty versus clean when it comes to that? Well, I think the flavors that you get from an unsuccessful spontaneous fermentation or enteric fermentation when it first starts off and you get some of those, uh, you know, the bugs that nobody really wants to actually consume because, they, you know, they probably make you sick. As they work through the beginning, they do create a lot of these really, to me, you know, phenolic, plastic, and unpleasant flavors. Okay. And, that, you know, I feel like that... Um, I've had some successful and unsuccessful um, samplings of beers made in that fashion that, you know, again, just for just the romance behind the production needs to equal the flavors that they put out. You can't just say, hey, I did this awesome, you know, um, you know, spontaneously fermented uh, ale that, you know, aged in oak for three years and da 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 and it's gorgeous. I hand corked it. And then you open it and it tastes like shit, you know I mean? It, so the process has to lead to a, an end product. And, I don't know that everyone understands that. No, no, no. Well, so, I, and I don't think that they do. And I think we're at this 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 point now with so many breweries and so many people uh, trying their hand at it, and they're not taking the time or putting the you know the thought in because pretty much anything that 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 brewers make these days, they're they're guaranteed to sell to somebody. So <laughs> um, they're they're not stopping to necessarily say like, oh, is this really our, our best representation? And so as somebody who learned from Vinny and Peter and, and, and Dan and uh, and again and, and, and you have inspired uh, brewers as well to, to go off and do their own thing and to, to, to try their hand at something. Um, what's the frustration level like when brewers, fellow people in your profession are taking a style that you're passionate about that you've had for a long time and are like as you say just putting shit out there i mean you know i think well it's frustrating i mean it's you know i try to be very um you know i get handed beers a lot at festivals and you know at events and i'm asked what i think and i always try to be very constructive in my criticism but um, i you know i think that but you do give criticism. I try. Okay. I try to do it in a very soft and gentle way. But I mean, I think people, you know, I think the people that are trying to make these beers, I, you know, I think that they would be um, that they'd be well served to drink their beers that they've created and that they're proud of, and you know, they should be proud that they've tried and that they they've put in the hard work. They should try them up against some of the ones that are are the standard bears of, of what they should taste like. Right. And when you do that, and I've done that time and time again over the years, and many times been very disappointed in what my beer tasted like after doing that, um, you know, and dumped it down the drain or whatnot, you really start to learn. And, you, you know, this is what, you know, you take out consecration or supplication and you taste that against your, you know, your dark-fruited ale and, you know, 
then you tell me what your dark fruited ale tastes like and you know does it taste right um, you know and then there's obviously just the clear flaws you know there's the acetyl uh, you know nail polish remover and, yeah. and diacetyl and you know I mean I, if you don't have a nose that can detect those find somebody who can and let them sniff your beers for you because you get all those flavors in those beers and they should be going down the drain yeah. you know we did um, we had a, one of our experimental brews here um, that one of our brewers put together was Kvass and it was um, you know used Russian rye bread and loaves and did a you know uh, sour mash and an overnight fermentation I mean that beer went down the drain so fast that he couldn't even fucking you know <laughs> it, it just you know it was an awesome idea sure and it was a lot of you know time and energy and well intent spent on on creating it and and um, they had nothing but the best intentions and, and you know there was nothing wrong with the execution but the flavors they, you know microorganisms sometimes can do some funny things and it just to me it smelled in a way that I would I couldn't bring myself to serve a customer that beer and so we put it down the drain and I wonder if how much that has to do with when you opened in that you didn't have the room for error back then because if you put out something that had a clear flaw or uh, tasted bad in those in those very very early days uh, you'd be eclipsed pretty fast you know because it'd be like all right well we tried the local guy but now we're going back to our handle of bud yeah I mean I, I that's that that is a good point but I would argue it's even worse today I mean if you make bad beer today you're done in a second like I feel like people may have been a little more forgiving and maybe gave you a couple chances where now probably if somebody tastes a beer they don't like they just write it off and they say you know there's 5,000 other breweries I can get a beer from so it's, you know, it's... Um, I think sours, I, yes, maybe for IPAs and porters and some of the... From a sour stuff, standpoint. From a sour mean, standpoint, oh, yeah. though, I think it, it's, it's still Wild West. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. Um, one of the things with your sour program, we, we talked about this, uh, and, and by the way, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you should go back into our archives of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. You can see a profile I wrote on Scott uh, that appeared uh, in, a, in an issue towards the end of 2017. It's also online at our website, beerandbrewing.com. But in that article and and in the course of those interviews we talked about your barrel program mm-hmm. and I, I want to switch gears to that because it, it, it does apply to, to your sour program but everybody has a barrel program these days sure. everybody who starts has a barrel program and it's usually uh, depending on your size you know two or three barrels that's sitting off in a corner yeah. somewhere of different origin sure. of various age of basically whatever you could get your hands on and I think that that's a smart way uh, to start off and you get to, to experiment a little bit but when you started off that way but then you graduated into a well thought out process we've tried it's a well thought out process I, I mean walk us through how you changed your barrel program to what it is today sure yeah I you know, being that being where we are, and again, just, just as the craft beer industry has grown up, so have the so is the have the suppliers that supply the craft beer industry. So, you know, when we opened up, um, I couldn't get barrels really. I mean, you know, at the time, bourbon barrels were tough to to, to come by. Um, wine barrels were three thousand miles away for the most part. Um, and anything other than that, you could pretty much forget about. So, I mean, I did a lot of Googling and whatnot. Um, we got wine barrels from the, the winery that actually happened to be next door to us, which is more of an equipment supplier, but they made some wine. So we had that source. Um, but I just started looking online and doing my best to research. I mean, and I ended up uncovering, you know, um, uh, Virgin Island rum barrels that I just contacted a distillery in Florida that happened to bring them over. Um, I found a distillery down in New Jersey, an oldest in America, that would made made apple brandy, and I called Laird's them up. Laird's Applejack. Laird's Applejack. Yeah. You know, they've been a great partner, and we've been purchasing barrels from them for years. Um, 
couple bronze medals at the JBF for Golden Delicious using their barrels. Um, you know, I've contacted somebody in Portugal and got port barrels shipped over. And I found somebody selling an 800-gallon fooder in, in Napa that was used as a garden ornament that I bought and my mom climbed in and cleaned out. So back then it was kind of like, you know, get what you get. And Did you know, she offer or did you ask? I, I begged. I begged. I was <laughs> Even at that point, I was too big to fit down, fit in that hole to get in there. So she she squeezed in there. There's a picture of it somewhere. The barrel's actually sitting right out there. It's out front. Oh, is that when you when that, you're driving in? Yeah, that was the original. The uh, that was our original fooder that I purchased wow. in 2007, maybe. Um, you know, way before fooders were were widely available. Yeah. And so in the beginning, it was again, it was, you know, get what you know, scrounge up what you can find, um, try to come up with a cohesive plan for the beer that was going to go in it, and then. You know, when you had time to deal with it, deal with it. And, you know, if you had a specific plan, roll with it. And, and that was, you know, it was very much a lot of um, experimentation. A lot of it worked. A ton of it did not work. And a lot of it went down the drain. You know, as, as I began to get more uh, reliable sources for barrels and start to understand where I could get these things from, then we started um, creating more... Um, batched out sours, meaning that we had a plan. We knew we needed 20 oak barrels, we were going to do this size batch of this style of beer, and it was going to get this, these Britannomyces and this kind of grapes, and it was going to go for X amount of months. And, and that kind of worked out well. Um, as we wanted to start playing with different fruit and different, um, and different finishings, we found that using 55-gallon barrels became increasingly difficult from just a, a, a labor standpoint and from a practicality standpoint. You know, trying to, to jam, you know, 100 pounds of crushed up uh, grapes and grape juice into a 55-gallon barrel that already has beer in it can be fairly problematic um, and cause a lot of um, things to be checking out on a regular basis. And so as the program evolved towards these set styles and, and, and more of a defined process of um, brew a clean beer, filter that clean beer, pitch wild yeast and specific bacteria, age in oak, add fruit at a specified time and titratable acidity and gravity, age until uh, fermenta secondary fermentation complete, until flavors come together, then rack, bottle condition, and keg. So it went from, you know, now we have a defined process um, in defined size barrels and vessels when it was just once. Uh, let's see what we can put in some barrels and see what happens. And how is that? I mean, it, it sounds like that's been to the great benefit. But I, yeah, yeah, I think so. From a consistency standpoint, from a flavor development standpoint, and from uh, an efficiency of, of equipment standpoint, meaning that like, you know, we have one gigantic eighteen hundred gallon barrel that we need to treat and take care of and make sure it's happy and make sure it's topped off, rather than forty little barrels, you know, or eighty little barrels. So, I think it's worked out well for us. Um, we found a lot more consistency, but if a tank doesn't work, it's you know it used to be uh, you know forty different barrels and maybe five of them didn't taste right. Now it's now it's all or nothing. Yeah. And so we have we have had ones that we you know unfortunately didn't work. What are those days like? It's you know to be honest with you, some of them weren't quite sour enough, no matter what we threw at them, um, and some um, unfortunately, um, you know, you get a little bit of that enteric. Uh, and then acetaldehyde and, uh, you know, you just get the flavors that, you know, I think a lot of, uh, maybe more, more, not as many now, but I think there was a point in time where a lot of brewers thought that you could blend good and bad beer together and get good beer. You know, you, you can't blend out nail polish remover, you know, no matter how hard you try, at least in my estimation. And there's, there's a certain point, though, where 
you just know that you have to give up. Oh yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, a lot of I, people I, don't want to reach that point though sure. or admit it. Right. But I mean, what is it for you? Is it nail polish? Is it, is, oh, is it, yes. okay. So there's, you get, you get acetyl, yeah, you get um, ethyl acetate and um, you get diacetyl. Diacetyl can go away. Ethyl acetate's never going away, at least on a, on a higher level. Right. And you get vinegar, ethyl acetate, and to me, that is just not the right, those are not the right flavors in sour beer, but that's just my, that's, that's my, uh, that's my flavor, you know? I mean, there's probably plenty of successful American sour brewers out there that are selling beers that have a titratable acidity of, you know, 18. And, you know, if I drank them, I would feel like I had battery acid going down my throat. But they're happy with them, and their customers like them. And sure. It's a very, you know, to me, it's, um, again, I'm not, I'm not making sour beer to make beer sour. I'm making sour beer to add complexity and flavors, and they all have to work together, not just be sour. What are some of the ingredients that have inspired you that you've, you know, you've done rose hips, you've done uh, a, a variety of different things um, uh, in the experimental phase. Are, are there... I mean, grapes have always been a huge um, influencer. I mean, I, you know, not only from a color contribution, but from a, um, from a acidity, you know, acidity contribution, or, you know, they had tartness, they had, you know, beautiful flavors. I mean, you know, the, the, the sour beer... And wine, you know, they're very close, and uh, in their in a lot of their characteristics, and so I think they blend beautifully together, personally. Um, you know, but I also think that with fruit, and, and I'd say ninety nine point nine percent of the fruit that we use um, is from New York State. So we use local fruit because it just makes sense. Now we are going to do something with dragon fruit this year, and dragon fruit does not grow in New York State, so that'll be, but. All the other fruits, apricots, peaches, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, cherries, plums, grapes even. We got 2,000 pounds of Cabernet grapes from Thirsty Owl up in the Finger Lakes this year. Uh, gorgeous stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, fruit. I lost my train of thought. Well, no, but <laughs> it, it, the, the hybrid or the, the act of adding grapes to beer, yeah. I think, is, is increasingly interesting to people, especially because we're seeing a lot more cross drinkers these days. We're seeing sure. people who, you know, used to, it used to be like, well, I'm a beer person or I'm a wine person or I'm a spirits person. Now we're seeing all three as well. Oh, and I, so, yeah. I feel like that, you know, female, um, female wine drinkers, especially if they drink white wines, like, you know, our barrels like gold or some of, you know, the cuvee, I mean, they'll, they'll love it. It's just got a lot of that similar characteristic. It's bright, it's sparkly, it's, you know, it's it's tart. It's not, you know, tear your throat out acidic, and it's um, the refreshing. And it, it does open up new avenues for sales as well, where you can say, oh, if you're a wine drinker, sure. you know, you're going to, to, to like this as well. You brought up something really uh, interesting, though, of, of color, of SRM, of, of, mm. of and, and it's something that, when it comes to sours, I'm not always sure people are thinking of because we're, we're so focused on the flavor. Mm -hmm. But we do drink visually uh, 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 so much. What do you look for um, when you're picking out ingredients? Are you hoping that, you know, are, are, are you looking at ingredients for color? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important, like, for the point you just made. I mean, so we made a batch of uh, Hudson Valley Harvest Cherry. It's a golden ale with cherries from right up the road. And we did uh, four different cherries. We did Montmorency, Surefire, Balaton, and Danube. And I believe it was the Surefire has a white flesh, white insides. And we made this beer with it, and it had no color. Yeah. And people are like, well, how is this a cherry beer? It's not red. And I'm like, yeah, but taste it and smell it. And, you know, it is. Um, whereas the Danube and the, the Montmorency's were like these 
beautiful pink red hues and immediately people say ah you know it's, it makes sense so we have given thought to that um you know would i use surefire again probably not to be honest with you i mean it made a nice beer but um i'd rather use something i didn't have to explain that yes it does actually have cherry in it. and explain over and over and yeah. over and over again yeah yeah i mean that's for the obvious ones like you know the black raspberry that we do i mean it's it's purple you know and um but you know beers that use like peaches and whatnot you don't really get a lot of flavor contribution um, but yeah, I mean, I think it tells us, you know, it helps tell the beer's story for sure. You know, the dragon fruit one we're going to be making, um, it's going to be pink. Yeah. You know, and you want it to be pink. Right. You'd hope so. Yeah. If it, if it wasn't. If it's not pink, I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, before we started recording, uh, we were talking about, you know, sort of the nature of independence uh, these days and how it's, it's, it's more important now uh than ever, and in the face of so many breweries um, uh, that have been sold to larger companies these days, and um, independence, I, I think, is, is 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 super important. But especially if you are a regional player, uh, like here, like I'm yeah. looking around the walls and I'm seeing all of these various partnerships that you've had, uh, local civic awards that you guys have been honored with. Uh, there's there's firefighter patches uh, from from different station houses on the walls. Um, it, this feels very local, mm-hmm. and you know we talk about craft, and we and that's been a changing term. We do talk about independence, but is, is the nature of independence um, how how does that play into where you are uh, physically, as opposed to this larger idea of uh, well, we're independent, so we're not one of these big guys. Like, how, how does location factor into independence uh, in, in in your mind? Oh, wow. Well, I mean. You know, the whole thing with independence, at least the way I look at it is, is, you know, is that if you are an independent brewer, no matter where your location really, you know, you have the same struggles, whether you be highly successful or you be, you know, small and just starting out, you still have the same realities of the day and which is that you actually do have to pay your bills and you actually do have to worry about the bottom line and you do have to pay your employees and you have, you know, you have, you have to deal with those problems. You know, when you when you start getting gobbled up by the larger and larger players, you know those 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 realities go away. Um, I have nothing against the people that have sold out. You know, good for them. Um, but they've created, you know, to to steal a term from a well-known brewer out there, they become weapons of mass destruction, and then can be used in ways that a normal brewer's the economics of being a normal brewery can no longer be. And so, you know, it just it's like any industry, and it just tips the playing field. And you know. To the point about, you know, local partnerships and, you know, where we are, I mean, the only way we survive as a business, this size, smaller, larger, is to be a part of your community and not just be an island within a, you know, within a state or a space. I mean, we we need we need to be a living, breathing um, community, basically, in in order to survive. And and the only way we do that is to be a part of the to, to be a part of the community, invite them into our space. And to have them understand what it is we, you know, we go through and, and how we try to help and be a part of what, what they're going through. We're at a point where I think early on when you first started and, and when so many other folks first started, they, they weren't thinking about the next stage. They weren't thinking about the, the next generation. They weren't thinking about, uh, you know, what, what does the brewery do yeah. uh, after I'm gone, uh, as, as it were, especially founders and, 
you know, we had Larry Bell uh, on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how he passed the the brewery on to uh, to to his daughter, and uh, they 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 had this whole rigmarole uh, to, mm-hmm. to to make that happen. You know, not everybody has that. Uh, some folks are going ESOP, um, and then other people are just you know selling to uh, uh, other people. How how much thought do you give to what happens to Captain Lawrence? Yeah. When you're ready to, to retire, I have not given it much thought as of late. Um, I mean, I'm you know I'm 39. I got some time to go. I always you know I tell my wife they're gonna have to pry me out of here when it's time for me to go home at the end of it all. But um, I, you know I, I haven't given it a ton of thought. I mean, I think you know face value would be amazing if my kids wanted to run the place. I don't know that I'd want them to have to deal with it. You know, I mean, it's again don't get me wrong. It's an awesome business to be in. I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. I don't know how to do anything else. But there are a lot of headwinds out there, and there's you know it really is a business that if you're not creative and you're not constantly um, coming up with new things, you know you're done. Like this is this is evolve or die. I mean that's where we're at today. You could look at a lot of legacy brewers out there today that have tried to evolve, and maybe the scale they were at with some of those legacy brands wouldn't allow any small innovations to make a difference. You know I feel fortunate that we're at a place where, you know I mean five years ago our pale ale was our biggest seller. It sure as hell isn't anymore. What is it now? It's our IPA, and you know it's some of these smaller batch, um, you know. Uh, you know, new IPAs, if you will, you know, New England style, Northeast style, hazy IPAs have been growing like crazy, even for yeah. someone our size, you know. So, you know, I don't know that uh, I'd want them to get into this industry unless they were um, creative enough to, you know, to, to realize that they got to keep it going. Where do you look for inspiration for when you're going forward? You know, it's, you're saying it's adapt or die, um, and it is. And I think that there's so many folks who have put so much of their eggs in the in the in the hazy IPA basket right now, and you know it's a it's a fine style and it's certainly doing really well. But uh, we know that this is a fickle industry, and something else is going to eclipse it at some point. Um, you know, where do you, how do you stay nimble in in, in in something like this? I mean, you have to look internally to people that you have, and hopefully you've built a good team. And you know, I know I got a lot of very creative people that work here, and. You know, that little pilot system we walked back before, I think we did close to 90 brews on that last year. And, um, you know, we've done some cool stuff. Um, and you definitely look out and you see, you know, trends and what, what other people are doing. And, you know, the, I've always drawn inspiration from reading about other beers before even tasting them. And that's always been the thing that's always gotten my mind turning. Like, you know, wow, they, they use this and they did this. And, it, you know, they're saying it tastes like this, but what if they did this and they did that? And, you, you know, like it kind of gets the creative juices flowing. Um, and then culinarily, I mean, you know, you look at what's out there and, you know, what you like for food. And what, you know, we just totally changed over our menu here in the taste room to a Southeast Asian-inspired menu. That is, you know, a lot of people are telling me it's crazy and it's got nothing, it doesn't, you know, it's not a beer hall menu. And I'm like, you know what, but, you know, we're making a lot of crazy beers, too, that have a lot of different flavors. And I think, you know, these flavors are going to work well together. So I'm sure those that food is now going to inspire a whole new wave of beers that we're going to be making based on some of those ingredients. Um, and there's something to be said about not having beer hall style, like, oh, everybody's got burgers, everybody's got, you know, et cetera, it, to, to stand out a little bit more. I mean, that, that's of interest to me. That is the that argument got- that I've been having internally with our staff since I finally pulled the trigger and made the decision. I think it took a little while for everyone to really get over it, but, you know, I think that it was the right move to make. Uh, like I said, nobody is ever going to go Instagram a picture of our cheeseburger. 
but they may like you know maybe the bao buns or the dan dan noodles or the uh, you know whatever you know they're gonna the flavors are the flavors like if you like flavor it doesn't matter if it's southeast asian or if it's new american or it's french it's flavor i think that's a good place to leave it Sounds good to me. Scott Ficaro of Captain Lawrence Brewing. Thanks for having us here in your uh, tasting room. We're here on a day when uh, your, your guys are actually brewing in the back, and it's not open to the public, so uh, that's the background noise that, that, that folks heard. Um, you should definitely come and check out the brewery and the 6,000 square feet of space outside uh, next time you're in the greater Westchester County area. Uh, people can find you online at... CaptainLawrenceBrewing.com Perfect, and you can find us online at beerandbrewing.com. If you have questions for me, guests you'd like to, to, to see on this podcast or hear on this podcast, I should say, or just general comments, you can reach me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And we will be back next week with a whole new episode. Thanks so much for listening. And Scott, thanks again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. This episode has been brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, the country's only not-for-profit membership organization dedicated to promoting the community of homebrewers and empowering homebrewers to make the best beer in the world. Brew with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.